America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth where the time has come to talk seriously and honestly for once about a great subject. Maybe the greatest of all subjects when you're talking about human history. It's a subject that comes up again and again and again when people are debating the current war on terror in which we are all engaged. The subject is World War II, arguably the biggest event in human history. Certainly not the best event with more than 50 million people killed as a direct result of World War II, civilians and military casualties, but certainly no event larger in terms of influencing every corner of the globe, the way that people live. And yet what's so striking to me, whenever you hear people talking about World War II today and giving some kind of guidance or some kind of argument regarding our current foreign policy, our current situation, based upon the history of World War II, they often will rely on myths, on mistakes, and on lies about that conflict. Today, we're going to correct those lies with the truth in this very special broadcast, World War II, Myths, Mistakes, and Lies. The music there from a famous documentary of World War II, music by Richard Rogers of Rogers and Hammerstein fame, Victory at Sea, was a lengthy, lengthy TV documentary, one of the best things ever done on TV, about how the United States of America eventually won the war on the seas. But there were so many components to this war, and there are so many components to the misunderstandings that people have about the war that we want to get right to them and begin correcting them right away. Now, one of the first misunderstandings that people have about World War II is that World War II was very simply a continuation of World War I. I'll bet you you've heard that. Maybe you even heard that in a high school classroom somewhere. That is brain dead, it is wrong, and it is profoundly stupid. World War I was a horrible conflict. Some 18 million people... 8 million battlefield casualties and some 10 million civilians perished in World War I. But that's a fraction, maybe a third, maybe less, of the total number of people who died in World War II. The other aspect about World War I is that none of the nations involved in World War I were profoundly evil. In World War II, at least three of them were. At least three of them. And certainly behaved in horribly evil ways that was just unheard of in World War I. World War I, first of all, had a different array of powers. Japan was an ally of Great Britain in World War I. Japan was on the side of the Allies. And the Japan that fought in World War I was a very, very different Japan from the militaristic, imperialist Japan that fought in World War II. Italy flipped during World War I. The Italians, you know, sometimes they have a lot of tough time making up their minds. They started off on the side of the Germans, and then they ended up on the side of the Allies. That's important to keep in mind. And there was no flip with Russia in World War I. There was in World War II. It was a whole different array of nations. Yes, the two wars had in common that they were initially European wars, in which America ultimately got dragged in almost against its will. That was in common. But the basic thing about World War I is it was a civilized war, if there is such a thing, among civilized powers. The Kaiser's Germany was not Hitler's Germany. The Kaiser was not Hitler. 
many of the lies that were told about the Kaiser and were told about the Germans were deliberately told by British propaganda. When the Germans invaded France in World War I under Kaiser Wilhelm, he was the ruler of Germany at the time, the British propaganda said things like, well, the Germans took Belgian babies and put them on bayonets and roasted them over open fires. This never happened. It wasn't true. Not that we didn't find out later that the Nazis, the Nazi Germans, were capable of doing things very much like that, but the Kaiser's armies did not do that. As a matter of fact, one fascinating detail about World War I, the Kaiser was actually the grandson of somebody who, as arch enemies, the British liked a lot. He was the grandson of Queen Victoria. Yeah, he was. His mother was Victoria Adelaide, who was the daughter of Queen Victoria. That's how close and intimate the whole thing was. And the idea that the Germans were profoundly evil, or even the Turks, who were the Germans' allies in World War I, were profoundly evil, that didn't exist. The war was about power politics. And that's why the arguments that Woodrow Wilson made ended up ringing so terribly, terribly wrong and having a huge impact in the United States. The United States stayed out of the war, World War I, for three years until Wilson finally brought the U.S. into the war, and it was his choice to do it. He did that after running a campaign in 1916 where he asked for re-election under the slogan, he kept us out of war. And then literally a couple of weeks after his inauguration in 1917, boom, the man who had kept us out of war was bringing us into war. No wonder Americans after World War I were cynical. We were dragged into World War I. We lost 126,000 men fighting in that war during the brief time that we fought there of just a fraction of what the others lost, the French and the British and the Germans and particularly the Russians who even lost Tsarist Russia because of World War I. But the idea that there was somehow a, just a continuation because both wars involved the Americans and the British on one side and the Germans on the other, that is simply not the case. World War II, unlike World War I, was not just about power politics. It was not just about what kind of colonies people were going to be able to have or what kind of shipping rights the Germans were going to have or where the borders were going to be. World War II was about something deeply, deeply significant. And as a matter of fact, Franklin Roosevelt, of course, the American leader during most of World War II, he died at the very end of the war. On February 23rd, 1942, he gave one of his fireside chats in which he basically defined the stakes of the Second World War. We know now that if we lose this war, it'll be generations or even centuries before our conception of democracy can live again. He was exactly right. The conception of democracy that the United States upheld, that Great Britain upheld, was a unique thing in human history. It wasn't normal. It had developed only very recently. And clearly, it was threatened very directly, not just by our enemies, the Italians, the Germans, and the Japanese. It was also threatened by our allies, the Soviet Union. World War II was about a great deal. It was about the survival of ideas, the survival of whole civilizations. And it was very different, not just a continuation of World War I. That brings me, of course, to a second lie. And it really is a lie. It's a lie that's told often by people who like that idea of moral equivalence, the idea that all sides need to be understood and they all have legitimate arguments. 
It's the lie that says that World War II was made inevitable by the harsh terms of the Treaty of Versailles. One of the reasons I'm doing this radio show today is because I had a listener who wrote to me who said that, well, he'd always been taught that in school, that it was a Versailles Treaty that was so punishing of the Germans in World War I that made it inevitable that they would fight in World War II. The Versailles Treaty was an excuse, was an excuse for Hitler's madness. And it shouldn't be used as an excuse for anybody who's looking back at the war now. I mean, the idea that the Versailles Treaty was harsh, yes, it was much harsher than Wilson had promised. He had promised that the peace would be made under 14 points. And yes, when the war ended, World War I, the German troops had not been defeated on the field. They were losing the war. They had basically lost the war. But the lines of defense were not in Germany. Nobody had occupied Germany at all. The lines of defense and fighting were in France. And yes, the Germans felt betrayed and Hitler played on that. But the idea that the war sprang up because Germany was uniquely punished or discriminated against, look, the Japanese and the Italians, who were very much part of World War II, the Italians more than a lot of people realize, and because fascism came to Italy a year before it came to Germany with Mussolini, the Italians had won in World War I. They were given stuff like the city of Trieste in the Treaty of Versailles. They weren't punished by Versailles. The Japanese won lots in the Treaty of Versailles. So to say that the Treaty of Versailles made the war inevitable is to say that there's no difference between Germany and her allies when there was every difference in the way that the treaty dealt with those countries. It is a lie, and it basically excuses some of the madness and some of the profound evil that not only animated Germany in the interwar period, but that animated its allies, particularly Italy and Japan. Big lies about World War II. The Michael Medved Show. All across America. Twenty-one minutes after the hour, you're listening to a very special broadcast of the Michael Medved Show, World War II, Myths, Mistakes, and Lies. It's so important to confront some of these distortions because people use World War II all the time as an example of mistakes or policy decisions that we need to either make or avoid. And very often, they base their knowledge and their arguments about World War II on misinformation. Part of that misinformation we've talked about is the idea that World War II was just a continuation of World War I. Obviously not true. Different cast of characters, different array of nations, and very, very different stakes. Then you've also heard, I'm sure, that World War II was made inevitable because of the harsh Treaty of Versailles. One of the reasons I hate that particular lie, and it is a lie, is because it lets the Western leaders, particularly the leaders of Britain, France, and yes, the United States of America, off the hook for all of the failures that those leaders participated in during the interwar period and they shouldn't be let off the hook because there was nothing inevitable about the cataclysmic disaster known as world war two it involved all kinds of mistakes and one of the other mistakes that people make about the war is the suggestion that the absolutely crucial decisive mistake that was made was made at the munich conference in 1938, just a year before the war, where Neville Chamberlain, the leader of Great Britain, and Deladier, the leader of France, both appeased Hitler by allowing him to take over the Sudetenland and Czechoslovakia. Look, that was a very, very important moment 
But that was not the decisive mistake. It wasn't even close. There were two others that you need to know about that were much more serious. One involves the reoccupation of the Rhineland, and the other involves a totally, totally misguided guarantee to Poland. Let's get to each of those. First of all, the nature of the Treaty of Versailles. The treaty that ended World War I, that was ultimately negotiated, part of the problem with the negotiations was Woodrow Wilson got very sick in the middle of the negotiations and things did not turn out the way that he wanted them to exactly. But one of the things that Wilson agreed on, and everybody agreed on, is that Germany would have to be demilitarized. Part of the terms of the Treaty of Versailles were similar to the kind of treaty that Japan signed in 1945 at the end of World War II. Germany was not allowed to have a major army. They were going to have to keep their military forces down to less than 100,000. And very sensitive areas of Germany, in particular what's known as the Rhineland, which is right on the French border, would have to be demilitarized. They were not allowed to put any troops in the Rhineland at all. Germany was also not allowed to develop an air force. So Germany was basically kept as a what would have to be a pacifist uh, or a non-military power that could develop economically, that could develop the standard of living and the influence of its citizens, but could not develop its military traditions or its military force. That was what the Treaty of Versailles said. It wasn't an unreasonable position. And by the way, that's part of what allowed Japan to prosper so dramatically after World War II is Japan did not, under its constitution after World War II, develop any kind of substantial army at all. Today, the United States actually would like to see our Japanese allies with a little bit more military force, but because of their commitments at the end of World War II and because of the Japanese constitution, they're not allowed to do that. In any event, after Adolf Hitler took over in Germany, and he took over in Germany not through violence, he tried that with the Munich Beer Hall Putsch in 1923, but... He went to prison, then he came back, and he built up his political power, and he got himself made chancellor of Germany in 1933. He was very openly committed to disregarding the Versailles Treaty, and that was part of why he was popular. At one point, Hitler wanted Germany to withdraw from the League of Nations, this sort of rump United Nations-like organization that the United States wisely never joined. When Hitler put it to a vote of the German people, and even anti-Nazi historians say that vote was basically fair, 95% of Germans voted to withdraw from the League of Nations because they felt the League of Nations was anti-German, that they were being persecuted, they were being frowned upon. And part of what Hitler determined to do was to violate the Treaty of Versailles, to go ahead and build up the German Air Force. He understood that air power would be decisive in any future war, and to eventually build up the German army. But before he did that, he basically tested the West. In March of 1936, he uh, sent one battalion of German troops led by a division of mounted cavalry. That's how serious it was. I mean, guys on horses went rattling across a bridge and violated the Treaty of Versailles very openly and occupied the Rhineland. Now, understand, the Rhineland was German territory. This was part of Germany. But under the treaty, very specifically, the French had insisted the Germans are not allowed to have any troops in the Rhineland at all. Hitler gave his troops the order to go ahead, move into the Rhineland. But if the French made any trouble at all and came after them, they were supposed to retreat immediately. 
The French at the time had the biggest and in many ways the best army in the world. They had 500,000 troops available to clear out the very poorly armed, a very poorly equipped German forces who had gone into the Rhineland. Most military historians will tell you it could have taken 48 hours, maybe maximum 72 hours, for the French to do the job with almost no casualties and to get rid of the troops that Hitler had sent in to occupy the Rhineland. The French did nothing. Absolutely nothing. Why not? Well, you could say because they were French. At the time, France was paralyzed by the normal political crises that they were having at the time, where governments couldn't last for more than a month or two. At one point, right on the eve of war, there was one government fell that because the mistress of one of the French politicians didn't like the previous politician, de Ladier. I mean, this is the French. But there was another reason that they did nothing. There was basically bitter disillusionment throughout the Western world, and including the United States of America, about World War I. Woodrow Wilson had sold the war as the war to end war, the war to make the world safe for democracy. At the end of the war, people saw a world that wasn't particularly safe for democracy. They saw a nightmare regime emerging in the Soviet Union, where Stalin was in the process of killing 20 million Russian civilians, butchering them. The world was not safe for democracy. There was great disillusionment about military power. The French were determined that they wanted to avoid war, and the best way to do that was to spend a fortune on military equipment to build up a big stable line called the Maginot Line and to defend themselves against any attack. But were they about to attack Germany, even in the Rhineland, where there was such an ill-equipped, vulnerable force? No, they weren't going to bestir themselves to do that, and the British did nothing as well. Hitler got the message. His potential enemies to the West will do nothing to stop him, would react to force with fear. When you send that message to a man like Adolf Hitler, you are asking for trouble. You are asking for world war. And that is exactly what the French and the British and the rest of the world got. More on the myths, mistakes, and lies on World War II. This is the Michael Medved Show. After the hour on the Michael Medved Show, a very special broadcast about World War II, so often misused in arguments about our current situation, a special broadcast about the myths, mistakes, and lies about World War II. And one of those myths, mistakes, and lies has to do with the interwar period where the leadership was so shabby, particularly of Britain and France, and then after 1933, very shabby in the United States of America by Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was, uh, I mean, hugely incompetent and hugely unprepared for leading this country into some kind of formidable world status. The United States at the time was ranked 16th among all the world's armies. Well, the French had an army of 5 million. We had an army and navy and air force all combined of 137,000. We ranked 16th in the world, just behind Portugal, and just ahead of Romania. 
in terms of world power. That's pathetic. And Roosevelt did absolutely nothing to adjust that situation, allowing the United States to be largely and unilaterally disarmed and unprepared for war. But the British and French did spend money, particularly the French, on preparing for war. And yet they were unwilling to use any of their resources when Hitler occupied the Rhineland in 1936. And then not long thereafter came the Anschluss, where Hitler went ahead and occupied Austria and basically absorbed Austria, which is the country in which he had been born, into Germany itself. Britain and France again did nothing. Why not? Well, because it was a move that was largely popular among Austrians. And it was. I mean, clearly the majority of people in Austria wanted to be part of this grand new German Reich, this uh, new remaking, Hitler thought, of the old Kaiser's empire and of the old Holy Roman Empire. That's why it was a third Reich. The original Reich, he thought, was the original Holy Roman Empire and then the Kaiser's empire, which was short-lived, 1870 to 1918, and now his new Third Reich, which he said would last a thousand years, a thousand Jahre Reich. And yeah, the Austrians were excited about that, but so were other Germans who lived elsewhere in the world. And some of those Germans lived in Czechoslovakia and the Sudetenland. Now, the Sudetenland was heavily German, lots of big mineral resources that Hitler coveted. But it's also true that the Sudeten Germans didn't want to live under Czechoslovakia, which was a new country that had been created by the Versailles Treaty, out of the ashes of the old Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so Hitler was determined to capture the Sudetenland, to take it away from Czechoslovakia and incorporate it into Germany. And that precipitated the Munich Conference, where very famously Neville Chamberlain and de Ladier, the French premier, came. There was also Mussolini was there briefly. There were Italian representatives. But they came to discuss the fate of Europe and basically, they all sold Czechoslovakia out. It was a particular disaster because Czechoslovakia was not a pushover. It had a bigger army than the United States of America. They also had a ring of forts along the German border. They were ready to prepare themselves and to defend themselves against some kind of German onslaught. But the British sold them out, despite the fact that there had been a treaty from the French guaranteeing that uh, France would go to war to defend Czechoslovakia if need be. Lesson to world. Do not depend upon French treaty commitments. Important lesson. In any event, this piece in our time that was provided, so said Neville Chamberlain, by the Munich Conference, of course, lasted... Well, actually, it was in September of 1938 that the Munich Conference took place. October 14th and 15th, Hitler violated the agreement he had made one month before and occupied the rest of Czechoslovakia. The whole business was shameful. Poland even took part of Czechoslovakia, and this thriving democracy and very wonderful country, the Czech Republic today is still a wonderful country, had been totally subverted and betrayed by the desire to appease Hitler. Why did they do it? Well, first of all, they wanted to avoid war. Second of all, there was this suspicion that Hitler was basically right because he was obviously incorporating people who wanted to be incorporated into his new Reich. And what did Franklin Roosevelt have to say about the whole thing? He sent a two-word message to Chamberlain after the uh, Munich conference. The two words, good man. Yeah, Roosevelt enthusiastically supported Munich. It is amazing, amazing how Roosevelt's reputation as a far-sighted statesman who saw the dangers of Nazism 
has survived the truth. But you're going to get that truth about Franklin D. Roosevelt talking about mistakes and decisive mistakes made by the leadership of the interwar years. Of course, the Munich conference was a mistake, but it wasn't as serious a mistake as the French passivity when Hitler occupied the Rhineland in 1936 or a mistake that followed up on Munich. After Munich happened and Chamberlain announced that we have peace in our time and Roosevelt congratulated him and everybody seemed to be happy and lovey-dovey, a month later, after Hitler violated the agreement, one month later, and captured the rest of Czechoslovakia and dismantled that unfortunate land. After Hitler did that, Neville Chamberlain went to the British Parliament and said, okay, no more Mr. Nice Guy. We uh, will now give a guarantee to Poland. If Hitler has designs on Poland, and Hitler had been talking about that, if Hitler has designs on Poland doing the same thing to Poland that he did to Czechoslovakia, we will go to war to defend Poland. And that became British policy and then French policy. Now, why was that a mistake? It was a mistake because there was no way that Britain could defend Poland. This is what is so mad about the whole thing. Czechoslovakia was defensible. It had a defensible border. It had forts on the border. It had the Skoda Iron Works, the munitions works, some of the biggest munitions works in Europe, as a matter of fact. And it had a strong army and was willing to fight. Poland was also a very patriotic country. It had just emerged for the first time after a hundred years of no Poland in the world. The new Poland had been created at the Versailles Treaty, and the Poles certainly didn't want to give up their independence. But their whole issue with Hitler was very similar to the Czech issue with Hitler. There was a city in Poland called Danzig, which is called Gdansk today, which had a majority German population. They wanted to be part of the New Reich, at least the majority of people there seemed to. And Hitler was making noise about a Danzig corridor, about having free access for German forces to this city of Danzig that had all these Germans in it. Now, for Chamberlain and Deladier in France to guarantee to defend Poland was in many ways a meaningless and totally misguided commitment because they couldn't do it. If you look at the map, uh, to, to get to Poland, they would have to go all the way around Germany. It wasn't like Czechoslovakia, where they could have moved and helped to reinforce a country that, that was already capable of defending itself. A British statesman of our own era, in 1996, Sir Roy Denman of the Labour Party, a lefty, said that the guarantee to Poland was thus placing the decision for peace or war in the hands of a swashbuckling, yet inefficient military dictatorship, that would be the Pelsudski regime in Poland, to which Britain could give no effective aid. The fear that after Poland, Hitler would have attacked Britain was an illusion. As he had made clear in Mein Kampf, Hitler would have marched against Russia. As it was, Britain was dragged into an unnecessary war, which cost her nearly 400,000 dead, bankruptcy, and the dissolution of the British Empire. This is the case that Pat Buchanan makes, and it's very controversial, but fascinating book, a republic, not an empire. And I happen to think that Pat Buchanan is right about the totally misguided nature of making a commitment that people couldn't enforce. It was like the French commitment to Serbia that helped to lead to World War I. You should not make commitments, obviously, to nations that you can't defend, and especially given the fact that there probably is reason to believe that Hitler's real interest was making war against Stalin and moving to the east against Russia. Remember, 
At the time that Chamberlain made the commitment to Poland, Hitler had not yet made his deal with Stalin. As a matter of fact, at that time, Stalin was reaching out to Britain and to France, saying, hey, let's make an alliance here. They didn't consider Stalin a reliable ally. They were right. They were horrified by the cruelty and barbarity of the Stalin regime. But the recognition should have been very clear that it was much more advantageous for Hitler to go to the east and to attack Russia rather than to turn his attention onto the Western powers, onto Britain and France. You're listening to a special broadcast of The Michael Medved Show, Myths, Lies, and Mistakes About World War II. For more history shows, go to medvedhistorystore.com. You're listening to a special broadcast of The Michael Medved Show, Myths, Lies, and Mistakes About World War II. In Mein Kampf, what Hitler wrote was, we terminate the endless German drive to the south and west of Europe and direct our gaze toward the lands in the east. We finally terminate the colonial and trade policy of the pre-war period and proceed to the territorial policy of the future. But if we talk about new soil and territory in Europe today, we can think primarily only of Russia and its vassal border states. Hitler hated the communist regime. And as a matter of fact, there were people even at the time who thought it would be an advantageous thing if the evil Soviet dictatorship ended up fighting and struggling against the evil Nazi dictatorship, taking Hitler's pressure and attention away from the West. But by guaranteeing Poland, well, of course, by guaranteeing Poland, the British were making that very unlikely and basically dooming themselves to go to war. Now, in terms of Roosevelt's position, Roosevelt's position has been hugely misunderstood. The terrific British historian Paul Johnson writes, It is a myth that FDR was anxious to bring America into the war and was prevented from doing so by the overwhelming isolationist spirit of the American people. The evidence shows that FDR was primarily concerned with his domestic policies and had no wish to join in a crusade against Nazism or totalitarianism or indeed against international aggression. He took no positive steps to involve the United States in the conflict. The war came as much of a surprise and an unwelcome surprise to him as to anyone else. He didn't do anything to veto or to block the neutrality acts that made it difficult for America to provide meaningful support for the West, nor did he meaningfully rearm America, which he could have done. There was even some public support for that. The notion that he was a passionate defender of freedom, writes Paul Johnson, throughout the world determined to assist the forces of democracy by all the means in his power, but frustrated by an isolationist Congress, is another myth of these times. Efforts by the British government to put pressure on the White House to take a more active role in defense of freedom against totalitarian aggression in either Europe or Asia were quite unavailing. The isolationist spirit of Congress, he writes, was advanced as an excuse rather than a reason for an activity. The truth about Roosevelt and the rest of World War II on this special broadcast. This is the Michael Medved Show. This is Michael Medved at michaelmedved.com for Town Hall. Based on 30 hours of intimate interviews, the superb new PBS documentary, Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in his own words, allows the Supreme Court Justice to tell his remarkable story just as he had narrated to family members or close friends. His recollections come alive through expertly edited still photos and film footage showing his rise from desperate poverty in the segregated South to appointment 
to the nation's highest court. His confirmation process, nearly derailed by last-minute, clearly dubious charges by one-time aide Anita Hill, makes for riveting viewing, highlighting a much younger Joe Biden's bumbling role as chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. The two-hour film is rated PG-13 for some of the salacious aspects of Anita Hill's testimony, but viewers of all ages will feel inspired by the heartfelt patriotism and deep religious faith that allow Justice Thomas to transcend every obstacle. Created Equal, a masterful piece of work, clearly counts among the year's best films. I'm Michael Medved. The Michael Medved Show. It is a great privilege to have Senator Rand Paul back on the show. Your source for breaking news and uncensored views. A lot of people have said that the coronavirus is providing a return of federalism. I think the arguments for federalism exist above and beyond even the practicality of the virus, but I think the virus actually makes a stronger argument for federalism because I don't think one size fits all. I think the rules might have to be different. It's the Michael Medved Show. Special broadcast of the Michael Medved Show about World War II. Myths, mistakes, and lies giving you the truth about history's most costly and most decisive conflict. Talking about getting into the war and the British guarantee that they would go to war to defend Poland. Hitler wasn't even sure that he believed it, and that was part of his calculation. The British didn't go into the war to defend Austria against the Anschluss, to defend the Rhineland from being occupied, to defend Czechoslovakia. Why, was the question asked, should the British die for Danzig, which was the German city that Hitler wanted to seize in Poland, but the British guarantee was there, and Hitler countered by negotiating the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact, surprising the whole world just weeks before the beginning of the war by getting a guarantee from Stalin that Stalin wouldn't oppose him if he went into Poland, that Stalin, as a matter of fact, would help carve up Poland and Stalin would be able to get control of the Baltic republics of Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, and also a chunk of Finland, which it wasn't so easy for Stalin to grab. But with Stalin's approval, Hitler launched the war on September 1st, 1939, invaded Poland to, uh, quote, relieve the German speakers who were in that country. And then the British declared war, even though they could do nothing to help the Poles because they were simply too far away. The British and the French declared war on Germany, though they didn't really do anything to strike at Germany, even though they probably should have in retrospect. One of the myths about the war is that it was just an easy cakewalk for the Germans to attack Poland. Now, the Poles did not have a huge army. They had an obsolete air force. The air force fought heroically. A lot of people know about cavalry charges by mounted Polish soldiers against German tanks. Actually, some of those charges went pretty well. The Poles ended up destroying, in their one month of struggling for their survival, they destroyed 217 German tanks and 285 planes with their outmoded air force, but they uh, ended up losing, obviously, to the Blitzkrieg. But not before they had succeeded in killing 10,572 Germans. 50,000 Poles died. But 10,572 Germans. When you think about how many people that is in a country like Germany, which was about the fourth the size and population that America is today, that would be the equivalent of 40,000 people dead in America today in one month. 
this was not a bloodless walkover, and it goes to the point that Britain and France should have attacked immediately while Germany was busy with the Poles. But they didn't. They entered a period of what became known as a phony war, playing a waiting game, waiting for Germany to attack them. Another fatal mistake. So many mistakes made by leaders and a bunch of mistakes made by people who don't know their history, which we are trying to correct. You know the old saying by Santayana, the Harvard philosopher, that those who do not learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. So important that we understand the past of the greatest conflict in the history of the world, the bloodiest and the most influential, World War II, myths, mistakes, and lies in this greatest nation on God's green earth.